Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us. We've got two stories for you today, dealing with life, death, fate. I think it's fair to call them both science fiction, or at least alternate reality based. And I think the worlds that these characters inhabit are pretty interesting to think about. First up, we have Ryan Jorley's Heart Failure. You may remember him from the first episode, where we featured his story, Covered Eyes. His story, Heart Failure, was originally a submission for the second Machine of Death anthology competition. In addition to following the requirement of crafting a story involving a machine that accurately predicts how people will die, he tried to create a premise that is poorly represented in science fiction by bringing commentary from the sports world into a dystopian setting. Ryan recently published a collection of writings called A Piece a Day, 366 Days of Stories, Essays, and Musings. Originally a 2016 New Year's resolution to write at least 200 words every day, this work expanded from short, thoughtful entries to include nonfiction writings on science, education, Christianity, daily living, and society as a whole. Also included are seven short stories and a novel titled A New Type of Reward. He hoped to convey the breadth of topics the human mind wanders through each day. And thanks to an ebook with a table of contents organized by category, it is easy for readers to navigate to topics they might find interesting, although Ryan would never want to deter anyone motivated enough to read the entire body of work. This is available on Amazon for only 99 cents, and I've been reading it lately and have a few quick things to say. One, any aspiring writer needs to be writing every day. So however you need to get to that point, great, but you need to write to be a writer. For Ryan, that was a New Year's resolution. For you, it might be something else. Two, Ryan hoped to, as he said in his bio, quote, convey the breadth of topics the human mind wanders through each day, and he succeeds 100% here. I can't believe the range of things he has to comment and pontificate on, but he does it very well. And three, The short stories in there are just as good as what you're about to hear, so definitely check it out. Okay, I'll stop talking now and read Heart Failure, but I just want to quickly set the scene so you know what's going on at the beginning of the story. A man is watching television, and you'll hear his inner monologue as it relates to what the commentators on TV are saying. Okay, here's Ryan Jorley's Heart Failure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 32nd Annual Drawing of the Fates, presented by Atlas Bank. We'll hold you up. Coming to you from lovely, snow-covered New York City, I'm entertainment analyst Ken Vincent, alongside sports analyst Milton King and business analyst Todd Marlton. What do you have for us tonight, Todd? The television on the wall rattled with the anxious pacing of a formidable man. Let's be honest, Todd. I know exactly what you have for us tonight. The same crap you've had for the past two months, he muttered. Well, as we all know, this year's magic number is 41 million. So all the big names filing into the hall right now have, within the past year, been bumped up into a yearly earnings bracket of at least $41 million. We have an extremely large class of over 800 this year, with the most anticipated being CEO Wesley Sanders. The man snorted at the TV. Whoa, big surprise there. And here comes Milton King with his matching necktie-highlighter marker combo. You got that right, Todd. The Sanders model hydrogen fuel cell car has finally skyrocketed in popularity this year, so you have to imagine the panel sending him to the machine first. Based on my mock drawings, Sanders will bring in the biggest earnings in this program's history, if my projections are correct, he added with a smirk. 
Does he really have to wave that highlighter around so violently? One day that's going to fly out of his hand and drill somebody. He does it so often I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. The muscular viewer mimicked the actions of on-screen Milton King with his television remote, flailing his arm wildly while making exaggerated facial expressions. Someone who wasn't in any of the mock drawings, yet again, is NFL linebacker Don Gascamo. Since being drafted into the North American Football League in 2050, he's created all sorts of buzz. He turned down a $46 million contract his rookie year for the Buffalo Blizzards and still had an absolutely fantastic season, leading the league in tackles. All right, Milne, let's hear this story for the 90th time this year. I sure as heck don't know it by heart. The man carelessly plopped down into his gigantic leather reclining chair. After that year, the team insisted on giving Don more pay, and he responded by signing a small two-year deal with New York. He put up more solid numbers in 2051, but was sidelined the following year with a torn ACL, followed by a broken leg. After being released by New York, he was picked up by Pittsburgh and played great in 2053. And guess what? When it was time to sign a contract in Pittsburgh this year, he turned down $40 million and settled for 32 What do you take from this, Todd? Oh, oh, let me guess. Dodging the drawing of the fates? Listen, Millen, we all know Gascamo has been dodging the drawing of the fates since he came into the NAFL. I've never met a professional football player who doesn't like money. Why is he so set against this program? I really don't know, because, to be honest, we haven't seen this resistance in a long time. When Congress passed this bill, and we saw the drawing of the fates implemented in 2015, he saw this kind of stuff all the time. Nobody wanted to go get a blood test and see how he or she was going to die. People were worried about financial implications and job stability, and some people just didn't like the nation betting on the specific details of their deaths. But when the program was amended in 2022, participants were given a small cut of the revenue from their drawings, their jobs were protected regardless of what the machine's result was, and some of the earnings were sent out to help the needy. After that, the nation really bought into this whole idea, and we've been going strong ever since. Give you guys credit, you sure do have everyone glued to their television screens to hear these results. Well, almost everyone. The man, no longer with his eyes on the screen, was attempting to balance the remote on his nose. As you heard Todd mention, betting is the name of the game. After the machine spits out the fate for each participant, the rest of us are allowed to place bets on the specific details of the fate. A perfect example, which is especially relevant to our current conversation, Milton and Todd, is the story of Gus Gascamo, Don's father. Our younger viewers may not remember the story, but I sure do. Gus was the man who, back in 2017, at the age of 18 years old, correctly predicted the death of professional football player Carl Bowers. The machine showed a result of slaughter, with the choices being slaughtered in a premeditated murder or accident at his family's slaughterhouse in his home state of Michigan. Despite the latter being the clear frontrunner, Young Gus chose a write-in ballot of Carl will be killed by a vicious hit, courtesy of second-string linebacker Samuel Slaughter. And unbelievably enough, the next year Carl Bowers was killed after taking a blow to the neck and head by Samuel Slaughter. Being the only person to predict that, Gus came away that year with $6 million. Unbelievable. I just don't get it. They don't even bother changing the stories. And what is most interesting about this is that, as far as we can tell here, that was the first time a better was boosted into the drawing of the fates from his earnings in the drawing of the previous year. As you might recall, the magic number for the next year was only 3 million, so Gus was eligible for that very next drawing. 
Well, Gus drew heart failure, and as you probably remember, his death came last year due to a very standard case of heart failure. He was 54 years old. The remote fell from the man's nose. Alright, let's talk about something else. Seriously. You know, here's what I don't get, and maybe Ken and Todd can help me here, but this was a classic example of a guy who benefited greatly from the drawing of the fates. Gus hit it big and was able to provide for his family, including little Don a little later in time, and as far as I'm concerned, his death was a very normal one. So, no hard feelings, right? Now why in the world is Don Gascamo so put off by the drawing of the fates? It's done wonders for the economy and the country's overall welfare, and we've seen plenty of second-generation participants when you look at all the actors, actresses, and business people of the nation. I'll tell you what, Don Gascamo needs to... Turn off this trash, that's what he needs to do, said Don Gascamo aloud. He sat there on his couch, remote in hand, staring at a now-blank television screen. Hey, I was listening to that, came his wife's voice from the kitchen. Come on, Don, are you really going to miss the drawing again? Tracy, if I go year after year not participating in the actual drawing, what makes you think I want to watch the thing from home? You're not even curious about everyone else, son? Don was already walking out of the room. Nope, I'd rather go to the bathroom and read whatever we have in there. Ten minutes later, Don returned to the room. I don't know why I said that. The e-magazine in the bathroom has the exact nonsense that's on the TV. This is the worst time of year, and that's saying something about the drawing, since it's right around Christmas. But his wife didn't hear him. She was too busy watching the drawing of the Fates coverage on a very low volume, positioned about eight inches from the TV screen. Oh, come on, Tracy, do you have to have this on? It's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's an American tradition. It's heartless. That's what it is. Do you realize what you're doing? Wesley Sanders is going to go up there, get his blood test, and a little piece of paper is going to come out saying, cancer. Then everyone goes nuts over it because Todd Marlton says, oh well, Sanders is a heavy drinker, so all you folks at home shouldn't rule liver cancer out of the ballot this year. So you're going to head over to the ballot office and submit your prediction. Sanders dies of liver cancer. I don't know what's worse, exploiting and betting on people's deaths, or the fact that Todd Marlton gets paid millions for this. Anybody could do that job. Don, it may not be as easy as you think. He has to do a lot of research on these people, especially the less famous millionaires. Well, you're probably right about that, Don responded in an honest tone. In a half-joking, half-sarcastic tone, he continued. But you know what I think? Wesley Sanders is going to get murdered by one of his assistants, who happens to have a birthday in early July. How's that for an expert analyst? I mean, it's certainly in-depth, but don't you think that's a little unlikely? Unlikely? You know, you should trust me when it comes to this stuff. It's in my blood. Don chuckled to himself. Oh, hush, Don. They're finally starting the actual drawings. Don went to the kitchen to grab a ginger ale, still somewhat listening to the TV, which was now turned up to a ridiculous volume. And with the first overall pick in this year's Drawing of the Fates, the panel has selected... Wesley Sanders from Sanders, Inc. Don could hear the roar of the crowd as Wesley Sanders walked up to the machine and rolled up his sleeve. Inserting his arm into the machine, Wesley felt a slight prick as the blood was taken from his body. Fifteen seconds later, a small piece of paper revealed itself from that messenger of fate. The head panelist unraveled the coiled slip and looked up. The result of the first pick, Wesley Sanders, is... 
Cancer. Ballots will be released at the end of the first round of participants. Tracy jumped up from her seat. Did you hear that, Don? He got cancer. You should totally use your idea. I'm not going to do it, Tracy. I'm not getting sucked into this lousy business. Tracy looked at her husband, frustrated. Business? Like I said, it's an American tradition. Oh, please don't buy into that. Don't let them convince you it's about tradition. It's always been about the money. Think about it, Tracy. You have to pay to play, just like any state lottery or other type of gambling. They purposely pick a small ballot so that the poor guy's death can only be predicted by a write-in. And most people are too scared to think of their own scenario. You lose the game more than 99% of the time. We're getting robbed. But those who write in win strike it big, and that's what it's all about. Your father was a perfect example of that. Tracy, I loved my father, and that prediction sure did help us out financially. But even then, he won big, and what was the result? He was forced to participate in the drawing the next year. That meant another slip coming out of the machine, millions more predictions, and even more money. They're always winning. Don't you see? Well, sure I do, but you can't forget how it helps our economy and provides for the poor. We're much better off than before the drawing existed. So, overall, I... I'm sorry to cut you off, Tracy, but my agent is calling. Don pressed the button on his earpiece. Yeah, what's up, Jeff? Who's looking to deal? Oh, New Jersey, huh? Well, I gotta know what they're offering. Two years? How much? Oh, Jeff, I don't know. Alright, I won't say no just yet. Let me think it over. Yeah, I can meet with them next week. Okay, see ya. Tracy looked anxious. What was the deal? Are you going to think it over for real or blow it off? Okay, so the New Jersey Knights are interested and their offer was $94 million over two years, which would be 47 for one year, Tracy finished. That would certainly put you over next year's magic number. Oh, please think it over, Don. I loved it in New York, and if you went to New Jersey, we would be close, but you wouldn't have to live in the city. I know you didn't like it all that much. Don stopped her. Don't worry, Tracy. I told Jeff I'd think it over, so I will. Honestly. Who knows, maybe I'll be able to get something smaller. But I won't know until I meet with the team's owner. I'm flying to Newark next Thursday, and we'll figure out what the options are. Don looked up and sighed. This is too much. Between those three clowns grilling me on national television and talks about being traded, it's more than I'd like to have on my plate in one day. Well, if you want some real food on your real plate, you can come grocery shopping with me. The first round of the drawings is winding down, so I don't need to watch anymore. Don cracked a smile. Yeah, let's do that. Just like some nationally celebrated holiday, the roads and stores were relatively empty due to the airing of the drawing. Don drove through town and saw very few people. Some of the smaller shops were actually closed. However, when they got to the grocery store, Don and Tracy ran into their neighbor, Lucille. Well, if it isn't Don and Tracy Gascamo, how are you two doing? I guess you're not watching that drawing of the fates. I never got into it myself. I think I'm too old. They didn't have that when I was growing up, you know. Oh, I watched the first part of it, but it gets less exciting after that, Tracy explained. Don's not a huge fan either. He's always been against the whole idea, but that's alright, I suppose. Oh, guess what, Lucille? Tracy could not help herself. Don got a call from his agent, and the New Jersey Knights want him on their football team. Lucille's face lit up. Oh, you don't say. You know, my late husband worked in the front office for them late in his career. 
They're a great organization, Don. They treat everybody very nicely. Oh, I appreciate that, Lucille. I'll have to keep that in mind. I meet with them next week. Tracy leaned over and whispered to Lucille, They want to give him $94 million for two years. Don, overhearing the comment, threw his hands up in frustration. Why, that's a lot of money, Don. They always were a generous organization. If Mr. Ada is still there, tell him Lucille Brennan says hello. Can do, Lucille. Well, we better go finish our shopping. It was nice to see you. As they began to walk away, Don stopped hiding his troubled expression. I wish you hadn't told her about the money, Tracy. That's our business only. I haven't agreed to anything yet. Oh, but it's so exciting, hon. Just wait until you meet with the team. You heard how highly Lucille spoke of the Knights. Yeah, we'll see. And after more than a week of waiting, Don did see how nice the Knights executives were. Going in, he wanted nothing more than for the meeting to be over, but he could not help but be taken in by the Knights' field, staff, and general feeling of closeness. However, the one thing which did not sit well with Don was the money. The owner, who happened to be Mr. Ada, was very stubborn in his generosity. After seeing Don play the last four or five seasons, he was convinced on a matter of principle that the linebacker was worth nothing less than $47 million per year. Don was fairly confident that he would be able to re-sign with Pittsburgh if he wanted to, but he knew where his wife's heart was. Thus, Don was forced to consider the New Jersey Knights because, in all reality, he was not sure where his heart was at this point. Well, how did it go, Don? asked Tracy as he was walking into the house back in Pittsburgh. Were you able to settle for less? Don shook his head. That Mr. Ada Lucille Brennan talked about was very persistent. He's the first owner I've met who tried to challenge me when I asked for less money. He says I'm too good to get paid less than that. Not to mention Jeff really thinks it's the best move for me. And I know where you'd like to be at this time next year, so I don't know that I have any other choice. Don's face fell as he collapsed onto the couch. Tracy sat down beside him and ran her fingers through his thick head of hair. Don, I know how you feel about this whole money thing and the drawing of the fates, but I think you're worrying about it too much. So what if you have to do the drawing? Lots of people do it, and I know we'll be fine financially. You just have to get past this mental opposition. She paused for a moment, trying to find the right words. I can't pretend to understand what it's like knowing your own death assignment but I think you could handle it. Don stared at his wife, shaking his head again. That's not what it's about, Tracy. I'm not scared of knowing how I'm going to die. It's just not right from the very foundations of the idea. I don't want people betting on my death. I don't want people knowing how I'm going to die. Heck, I don't even think it's my own business knowing something like that. That machine is just unnatural. Tracy put her arms around her bear of a husband. Neither said a word for a few moments, and then she looked him directly in the eye. Don, I've come to understand why you're against the drawing, but I don't think you realize just how much of a burden this is for you. I see how upset you always get around this time of year, and I believe that if you got the blood test and finally found out, you'd feel a lot better. Don sunk down into the couch even more, no longer looking at his wife. He had a feeling she might be right. And the more he thought about the new contract, the more he realized the only problem was the money. Deep down, he just did not want to be involved with the drawing of the fates, but maybe there was something to Tracy's point. He also did not want to disappoint her, either. 
Well, Tracy, we better start making the arrangements as soon as possible. We're moving to New Jersey. Tracy jumped on top of her 240-pound husband and threw her arms around him once again. Don even managed to show a little smile. During the 2055 season with the New Jersey Knights, Don Gascamo continued to get the job done, leading the entire NAFL with 128 tackles. The fans in New Jersey loved him as well, despite his previous stint with the rivals in New York. However, by the end of the season, everyone around the country had reason to be excited, because star linebacker Don Gascamo was finally going to be part of the drawing of the fates. On December 29, 2055, Don sat in a makeup room in New York City, awaiting his interview with sports analyst Milton King. Don's agent, Jeff Wilkins, stood behind him, giving him a shoulder massage. You got this, Don. The people have waited so long for your drawing that they'll love you no matter what you say in this interview. Yeah, well, if that Milton King points his pink highlighter marker at me, I'm going to take it, break it in half, and use the pieces as chopsticks to serve him the crap that he spews from his mouth on a daily basis. Then I'm going to wipe his mouth with that pink tie and... Hey, easy there, killer. I know the guy's never spoken nicely about you, but you have to power through it. It'll be like five minutes. And remember, this isn't a football game, so no trash talking, tackling, and definitely no eye gouging. Don stood up, waved his agent off, and smiled. Then he walked down the hallway to begin his interview with Milton King. Stadium lights were bright, but they were far away. Don wasn't used to being on TV, so he had forgotten how hot and bright set lights can be. In addition, few people had hated on him more than Milton King, so that didn't help the amount of anxious sweat pouring from Don's body. The cameraman was ready. All right, guys, we're on in three, two... We're back live to the 33rd annual Drawing of the Fates, and I'm here with perhaps the longest-awaited participant in recent history, New Jersey Knights linebacker Don Gascamo. Thanks for finally coming on, Don. Now, I have to ask, what took so long? It seemed as though you were purposely taking less money to avoid being in the Drawing of the Fates, and suddenly you take the big Knights contract, and here you are. Not a good start. Don's fingers tapped feverishly on his legs, his ears burned up, but he managed to calm himself down after a short pause. Well, I spent a few years jumping around finding the right team. You know, I had to find the right area and atmosphere for my wife and me, and I guess it took a little longer than expected. Yeah, but that doesn't explain why you actively took less money when you went from team to team. Listen, for me, football isn't about the money. The way I see it is that the less money I have, the less money I have to worry about. How do you think I've still been able to keep all my hair from falling out? Don showed quite a smirk while Milton King, whose greasy hair was slicked back over his balding head, moved on to the next topic. Well, now that you're part of this great American tradition, surely you're excited about being a potential first selection for the drawing. I am excited, Milton. The earlier I get my drawing out of the way, the better. Don immediately bit his lip. He knew it was coming next. Wait, so are you actually excited for the drawing itself, Don? I mean, you avoided it for so long. Do you really want to be a part of this now, or was it something about the Knights and the bigger contract? Don's eyelid twitched. He couldn't respond. All he could do was stare down at the pink highlighter twirling in Milton's right hand. After a few seconds of not answering, Milton followed Don's eyes down to his own hand. He pointed the highlighter at Don's face and waved it around to get his attention. Don? How do you feel about the actual drawing of the fates? 
Don waved his hand and brushed Milton's hand away, laughing it off nervously. Well, you know, it's just that it hasn't been too long since my father's death, so I wasn't really interested in going to the ceremony just yet. Well, that doesn't explain the years before your father's death, when he dodged the drawing. The linebacker sighed heavily, gritting his teeth. Look, Milton, it's like I said before. Back then, I was just trying to find the right team for my wife and me. My agent and I didn't want to take any big contracts and get tied up with the team. Don stopped and stared right at Milton, then off in the distance to the cameraman. Milton quickly decided it was over. Well, Don, it was great to finally hear from you, and we're all glad you'll be participating this year. You'd better get down to your seat, as the ceremony will be starting soon. Meanwhile, we'll send it back over to Ken and Todd. And the two men shook hands, without any emotion whatsoever. Tracy was waiting for Don at their table, down on the main floor of the hall. How'd the interview go, hon? Oh, it was terrible, but it's done now, so I'm fine. Here comes Jeff. He can tell you all about it. Jeff walked over and sat down at the table. He'd been watching the whole interview and said, Geez, Don, you lied more times in that interview than you did in the six years we've known each other. What's up with that? You usually speak your mind, regardless of what may be floating around in there. Yeah, but you know, I still don't want to be here, Jeff. I was just nervous and I didn't want to make too many waves on national television. I'll tackle the guy later if the opportunity arises. The two men laughed while Tracy remained silent. She was excited to actually be in New York City for the drawing of the fates, but scared of how her husband would react to the machine and its result. She would soon find out as the head panelist came out to speak. Welcome to the 33rd Annual Drawing of the Fates, and we're going to start right away with our first round drawings. Without hesitation, the man pulled a piece of paper out of a folder and began to read. And with the first overall pick in this year's Drawing of the Fates, the panel has selected... Don Guscamo, linebacker for the New Jersey Knights. The crowd erupted in applause and locked their eyes on the burly, bearded man walking up to the machine. Football fans had been waiting for what seemed like an eternity to see this man's fate. Others were just as excited, but merely because of his unique story. This would certainly be a great memory for all, they thought. When Don got up onto the stage, he smiled at the head panelist as he stuck his huge arm into the machine. He barely felt the needle as it pierced his body and drew some blood. Fifteen seconds later, Don followed the piece of paper as it was ejected from the side of the machine. The process was done very quickly, and the little slip was very short. In fact, Don figured the word couldn't be any more than three or four letters, whatever that word was. The panelist grabbed the paper from the machine, straightened it out, and said, The result of the first pick, Don Gascamo, is... Tree. Ballots will be released at the end of the first round of participants. The crowd gasped and started chattering rapidly and nervously. It was indeed a very vague and uncommon fate. Don stared at the head panelist for a moment, blinked a few times, and began heading back to his seat. In a way, he was kind of glad it was Tree, and not something like Wesley Sanders' cancer. Poor guy, he thought. At least mine will be more unexpected. Maybe this won't be so bad after all. Don remained to watch the first three rounds, the ones which were televised, of course. Afterward, he went out to dinner with Tracy and Jeff. So, how does it feel, now that it's over? Tracy asked. I have to be honest, Tracy, it's not too bad. 
I guess it helps that it said tree, because that doesn't really give it away to me. I'll never be happy about the exploitation, but I suppose if I don't think about it, it won't trouble me, right? That's the spirit, Donnie. Now you just keep playing football, Jeff added. It's like nothing has changed. A few days later, Don and Tracy were on their way to the grocery store, in their new Sanders Inc. hydrogen fuel cell car. Don turned on the radio, no longer annoyed by all the drawing of the fates buzz. So expect some snow showers over the next couple days, but nothing too significant. Back to you, Mike. Thanks, Joan. In a news report just received this morning, police have now identified Sanders Inc. CFO Patrick Penning as the prime suspect in the murder of CEO Wesley Sanders. As you all know from the incident two weeks ago, Sanders was found dead in his own office at the company's headquarters from three gunshots to the head. The hydrogen fuel cell guru set the record last year for largest earnings in the annual drawing of the fates. Additionally, you probably recall that his drawing was cancer. But before you go blaming the machine for being wrong, listen to this story. Police inferred from the time of death, surveillance videos, and building attendance records that a prime suspect would have been Patrick Penning, whose birthday is July 10th, making his zodiac sign cancer. Upon tracking him down, police were able to connect the weapon and all available evidence to the CFO. Aside from court formalities, it's safe to say that this one will be an easy case. Murder in the first degree by Patrick Penning. I'll tell you what, folks. This machine continues to help us in ways we never could have imagined. Using the drawing of the fates to help solve a crime not only found the killer of Wesley Sanders, but proves, once again, the accuracy and consistency of the machine. Don, stunned, could only continue driving and listening. Tracy, however, cracked a small smile and started to get jittery. Hey Tracy, what's up? Tracy looked at Don, but then put her finger up to him and pressed the earpiece button. Yes, hello? Oh, you're kidding. And I was the only one? How much did you say? Tracy shrieked in excitement and turned to her husband. You were right, Don. Right about what, Tracy? Don asked, turning to look at his wife. It would be the last thing Don Gascamo ever saw, for as his eyes drifted over, so too did the car and it crashed into a tree on the side of the road. The car had drifted so much to the right that only the driver's side of the car took the tree head-on, leaving Don dead upon impact. Tracy, battered and with broken bones, was still alive. She looked in horror over at her husband, who was, without a doubt, dead. Her husband's life in exchange for $138 million. Next up, we have Heather Whited's story, Ellison Once. Heather Whited graduated from Western Kentucky University in 2006 with a BA in creative writing. After working in Japan and Ireland, she spent two years in Nashville, Tennessee, earning her Master's of Arts in teaching before relocating to Portland, Oregon. She has been published in literary magazines Linger Post, Straylight, and soon the Timberline Review. In August 2015, she received an honorable mention in Gemini Magazine's annual short story contest. She has been a contributor on the Drunken Odyssey podcast. Heather Whited reading her story, Ellison Once. Ellison Once, written by Heather Whited, read by Heather Whited. The letter says that he is Ellison. That's the name of the advocate assigned to our daughter. 
Ellison wants. Quite a name for someone in his work, says Patrick, eyebrow raised at the paper we've waited for since May. It's true that the name is a bit unfortunate. I wonder if it's given any other parents in our situation pause, ever been the cause of any other raised eyebrows. Betsy has watched for the letter every day since her birthday in the spring. When she sees it on the table, she slumps in relief that the wait is over, and then her eyes light up with excitement and she runs to it. After reading, she has nothing to say about her advocate's last name, only his first. She says she can't imagine him. I think a Charles I could picture, or a Danielle, but I've never met an Ellison. You'll have to wait a month to meet this one, her father says. She wants a nice dress for the day, which we get her. Purple is her favorite color, and she chooses a purple dress and white shoes to meet Ellison once in. When we get home, Betsy puts the dress on again and takes several minutes to study how she'll look on the day she meets her advocate. Green has been my favorite color every time, I tell her. Really? Oh, yes. I've looked it up in my records. Each time I write green on the questionnaire. What about you, Dad? Betsy asks Patrick. Never had one, really. But my eyes are always blue. Really? And size 12 shoes, of all things. She has a giggle about that. Betsy is new, and all of this is a first for her. I catch myself sometimes saying when she comes around again, but I know it's an if. It all depends on Ellison once. The month between the letter and the meeting goes quickly. It's most of July and a few days at the start of August. Betsy is out of school and stays up late. Once, she asks if she can go into town by herself, since she's twelve now, and we tell her that she can. She comes home a bit later than she said she would, her arms and cheeks pink with sunburn, and says that she's sorry. The day of their first meeting, it's still dark when I wake, but when I go into Betsy's room, she's already sitting on her bed and dressed. She only needs me to brush her long hair, and she doesn't even need that, really. It's nerves that make her ask if I will. She says thank you when I'm done. She tries to be good, and hopes that she'll get to stay, in hopes that being good will be a thing that sticks, if she's allowed to come back. When Betsy was born, the room got quiet after her first moments. I couldn't feel her in the room, the presence of her lives entering the world again. I looked to Patrick, who reached down and squeezed my hand. There was so much frantic quiet before they finally gave her to me. The doctor, as gently as possible, told us that she was new, but my first look as they lowered her into my arms had already told me that. There was no one behind her eyes. We had to wait and see what happened each day, what she would become. Other parents went to look up their children and see where they had been, see who they were. Other parents had the thrill sometimes of knowing that their child had been with them before. We stared at Betsy's crying face and into her eyes, and there was nothing for us but the blankness of the new. Just as soon as we relaxed into her goodness, she turned twelve, and we had to get scared again. I make her a grilled cheese sandwich for breakfast, and she tears off the crust and makes a letter H that she leaves on the plate. 
Patrick shines his shoes and shaves, and I iron him a jacket to wear. I try three hairstyles before I decide on leaving it down. The Friday we go to meet Ellison once, it's hot. We have a long drive to our assigned office, and even though we leave just as the sun comes up, we're already overwarm in our nice clothes as we settle into the drive. The sun moves to a place just in front of us on the way, and we stop after an hour or so to get coffee for me and Patrick. We both let our drinks get cold after only a few sips. I looked up Ellison once, says Betsy on the drive, an act of confession. Oh, Bets, I wish you hadn't. That's where I went the day I was in town. Sorry. She squirms in her seat, unable to keep from sharing what she knows. He's been around a lot. His first recorded birth was in 1771. He's usually English, just not this time. And he's been named Daniel four times, just not this one. How old is he now, I ask, before I think of the wisdom of such a question. His last birth was 33 years ago. Patrick and I look at each other across the car, and for something to do with my hands, I reach for my coffee and take a bitter sip. We don't say anything about the relative youth of her advocate. He may have been around many times, but depending on the person, that can mean very little. When we arrive, we ride up in the elevator with a tall, red-haired boy and his parents. We get off at the same floor they do, and we, both families, look around and head for the same room that we spot at the end of a long hallway. Even before, I knew that the boy was new as well. A new person doesn't feel finished. They watch the world like they don't have enough time to see everything, which some of them don't. There are three others today, another girl and two boys. It's a large group of new children to be born in one year. We sit in the waiting area, all watching the same door. After a long wait, it opens, and a man steps into the waiting area. All three of the families look up at the same time. He's the first advocate to come through the door this morning, and he's soon to end somebody's wait. The man's suit is slightly rumpled in a way that makes me think he isn't a morning person and woke up late. His hair, with a bit of gray at the temples, appears older than his face. He holds a folder with our daughter's name on it. Ellison once. It's the gray in the temples. I have known him before. I'm sure he was Daniel then, though I can't remember which time it was that we met. I am also sure that this man has spoken to me in an English accent. I relax at the recognition. When I say the name Daniel to myself and look at the gray in his hair, I know he is good. He shakes our hands and sits down beside Betsy. He doesn't address her at first, but looks at me again for a very long time. For a moment I almost see it, his other face, the one when I knew him the last time we met. I think we've crossed before, he tells me. Yes, I think so, too. You have been... I am on my eighth, says Ellison. Patrick and I share a look that shows we know when his first birth was, and that eight lives is a lot to have had since 1771. Ellison gives us an embarrassed shrug. 
Unfortunately, sometimes I only get a short run. Happens to us all. Some more than most. Are uh, you always American? Yes, so far. I never know what to do with myself when I don't wind up in England, he says. You were Daniel then, the time that we met before. I know it. And the gray in your hair? Oh, yes, says Ellison. He lifts his hand like he might touch the spot, but then lowers it again. That's always there. Uh, maybe it'll come to us later, when it is that we've met. He turns to Betsy then, and he smiles at her. His smile is one I know. I'm sure of it. Hello. We're just going to talk today for a while, before your review next month. I need to know about you, to make your case. Betsy nods. I wish she knew the good feeling I get from Ellison. She wouldn't have the skirt of her new dress balled up in her hands if she did. But the smile Ellison gives her does something because she smiles back. They stand from their chairs and walk back together to the door, and then they disappear behind it. One by one, other advocates come for the other children, and then the parents are left alone in the room, some holding hands, some looking in opposite directions. Don't worry, says Patrick with a hand on my knee. You know how rare it is to have a new child turned away. Most people are good enough to stay. And Betsy is very good. I went to a meeting last month, without him. A place where the parents of new children gathered to talk. It was in the basement of a library, in a room behind the yellowed archives. There was a bottle of soda no one drank, a box of cookies no one ate. The people who had gone through the review with a new child told all of us not to worry with the ease of people who no longer have to. New children are rare, and to have one returned is even rarer. I showed them, the parents who have gone through this, pictures of Betsy, and they assured me she was a shoe-in. There were no parents of children who had been turned away there, of course. There was no one there to tell us what it is that makes a board say that the new child cannot come back. It's an hour until Betsy returns with Ellison. She's a lovely child, he tells us. He makes another hurried note in her file, and I get a look at his handwriting for the first time. Wait, I say. Yes? Are you part of a pair? Ellison stops writing. He lifts his dark eyes from Betsy's file and looks up at me. I am, he says. We haven't found each other this time. It normally happens when I'm around this age, though, so I might just need to give it more time. But he's even more English than I am. It works better when we both wind up there. He pauses. Do you know him? I would love to find him. I can only shake my head and mutter my response. I'm not sure if I do know him. I'm sorry. Ellison tries to smile again, and it nearly works. Not to worry. He shuffles the papers and hands one to us from the bottom of a stack of carbon copies. I'll be over for a home visit in three weeks. He gives us the form with the day of Betsy's home visit and of her official review, and a card for both me and Patrick with his name and phone number so we can call if there's anything we need. We have a celebratory dinner on the way back home. We all like Ellison once. What did you two talk about for an hour, Patrick asked Betsy. Oh, school, friends, 
the things I like to do. He asked me if I dream. What a question, I say. Betsy shrugs. It was on the form. That night, in bed, as we pull the covers over ourselves, Patrick asks me about my crossing with Ellison once. I tell him all I know when we settle into bed and go to sleep. He understands. Crossings are that way sometimes. When I was small, there was a boy who lived three houses down, a few years older than I was. I was too young to know why I cried whenever I saw him. One day, my mother explained that he had done nothing wrong, but that he was new. He could not help the feeling that I got from him. I was told to be kind. He stayed. I stopped crying when I saw him, and then, one day, his family moved. There was a new child in my class at school when I was twelve that did not stay. She's the only one I've ever known to be turned away. She had her review on a Friday and did not come back. Her seat was empty for the rest of the year, and the children who sat around it moved away inch by inch until the desk was an island in the middle of the room. I accidentally saw the girl's parents once when they came to get her things from school. I had forgotten my jacket and rushed back into the classroom to find a man and woman putting the contents of her desk into a box. The man crouched in front of the desk, pulling out the girl's notebooks, the ones covered with stickers that I'd seen her put on there all year. The woman had her hand on his shoulder. My teacher stood beside them, collecting the books that would be returned to the school. He turned when he saw me. Not now, my teacher said, and I scrambled from the room backwards, but not before I saw their faces when they looked up to see who he had spoken to. Those faces were my greatest fear, until I had a child of my own. The day of the home visit, Ellison takes the bus and walks over a mile from the stop to get to our house. He arrives a bit sweaty, more rumpled than the last time we saw him, but more boyish as well with his face red from a walk in the muggy evening. The red doesn't all fade as he cools off, and while he's there, a faint sunburn shows itself on his nose. Ellison pokes around everything in the house and makes notes, but he does it looking very sheepish and says several times how sorry he is that he has to do this. If I blink sometimes, I see him differently. A version of him with another haircut, but still a bit of gray at the temples. A version of him with the same smile on another face. He wears clothes I can't place, and I almost hear a voice, the voice of an Englishman, call him Daniel. He makes notes of the books in Betsy's room, of her clothes, even goes to the attic to look at her old toys. I stand there in the door, after I've left him alone with the boxes of Betsy's things, and watch him sit cross-legged in the dust of the attic and take out her old toys, one by one, and make notes on them. Ellison comes downstairs after an hour, and the dust in his hair makes him look grayer than usual. His hands are dirty, and when he puts Betsy's file on the kitchen table so that he can wash them, I see his thumbprint in the corner of one page. Is that all, I ask? If there are baby pictures, those are often helpful. I bring out the albums, and he sits in front of them at the kitchen table while I start to cook. I pass the table where he sits, 
peering at pictures and scribbling, and I stop to watch him make a note. As I do, the notebook he writes in turns into something else for a moment, a letter where at the top he has written, Thomas, my beloved. And then it's gone, and he's Ellison once, again, cuffs dirty from going through my attic, making notes about my daughter's baby pictures. The question is already half-spoken before I fully realize I'm speaking. When did you last see him? Ellison is quiet, his pen frozen in the middle of making a cursive E. Our last lives. About a year before I was born this time. A hospital. You? I ask. Ellison once flushes, making the E he had stopped writing. I'm always the first to go. We invite him to dinner, and after, Patrick drives him to the bus stop. The imprint of Ellison's lives hangs on the house when he's gone. While new children leave no feeling with others about their past lives, they can still feel the lives of others. Ellison leaves a trail of memory through the house. It sounds like rain sometimes, so the day is sunny, and other times it sounds like a struck match cutting through silence. Betsy turns around from time to time throughout the evening, looking for someone who isn't there. I walk into a room and smell cigarettes, though no one in the house smokes. I don't tell them that I look up Ellison once, too. Most things are kept on computers now, but I go down to the records office one day when I'm supposed to be at work and spend hours with his file, looking at the hard copy of the information that was put there when he was born in this time, in this place. It's a cold room with no windows, where I sit for hours in front of different versions of Ellison's life, different streaks of gray, different versions of his smile that all come across the same. Each life is chronicled, each death, the six times he was born in England, the four he was named Daniel. There's a picture of him sitting on the hood of a car with another man. I know it's Ellison because of the gray in his hair and the smile. The other man is taller holds a cigarette. His shirt is half unbuttoned. Both of them squint into the sun and their hands rest almost together, but don't quite touch. The date says March 1940. He was Daniel then. The other man, it says, is Lewis, at least this time. It's so rare to see a pair, a real pair, that even in an old picture, my breath catches when I look at the two of them. I wonder if it hurts for them to be apart, what it's like when they don't find each other. Their letters are there, too. Copies of them, anyway. It's Ellison's handwriting I see on half of them, the longer letters. He doesn't write to Thomas, his beloved, this time, though I know that the man is the same one from the letter I once almost saw in my home. He does not write to Thomas, but the man he writes to is the same, just as this time he signs his name Daniel there at the bottom of the letters, and is still the Ellison caring for my daughter. The file says that in that life, the one when that picture on the car was taken, Daniel stayed out of the war due to an illness that killed him before the other half of his pair came home with hardly a scratch on him. Daniel was thirty-five years old. His other half lived to seventy-nine that time, nearly thirty-five years after his other half's death. Nearly thirty-five years of waiting, of hoping to see him next time.
of looking at faces and wondering if his love had already come back and was somewhere in every crowd. Thirty-five years of waiting for the pair of eyes that had that one person behind them. Thirty-five years of waiting for the person that would know him, no matter what he was called or what he looked like. There are other pictures, some older, some younger. The most recent are color snapshots from an instant camera. A hospital room in London, a thin man with a streak of gray in his hair lying on a bed, another sitting on the side of it. Betsy must have known this the day they met. I wish she hadn't looked him up. I put the pictures back and closed the file. Ellison once, his name printed on the outside of it, but my ears ring, a train whistle, chatter, all of it in English accents. I go to my own file. He's not there, nor is the other half of the pair. At home, I go down to the attic and bring boxes with my albums. I look through my pictures. I see no evidence at all of having known Ellison, but I feel that I have. I don't know where I fit in. It's the middle of September by the time Betsy has her review. All of us are up and down the night before. I hear Betsy in the hall. I hear her go up and down the stairs. I think I hear her approach our door and I whisper her name, but she doesn't respond. Patrick moves around in the bed, shifting from side to side. I ask him if he wants to talk, and he doesn't. I try to comfort him with a hand on his shoulder, but he jumps and shrugs me off. Eventually, Patrick gets up from the bed to sleep on the couch for a few hours and then comes back. He doesn't say anything, but he lets me hold him. In the morning, after we're dressed, none of us wants to eat. Neither Patrick nor I bother cooking, and no one goes to the table. We hover in different spots around the house until it's time to leave, and we all relax a little when the wait is done. Betsy doesn't wear her purple dress this time. Patrick begins to chatter on the drive, and slowly, Betsy responds. I can think of nothing cheerful to say, and sit in silence. A long summer's drought breaks as we drive to Betsy's review, and after we park, we run to the building and arrive soaked and shivering from the cold air that came in with the rain. Bellison meets us in the lobby. He managed to escape being drenched by the rain, and someone has ironed his suit. I look at the neat lines, the lack of wrinkles, and I wonder for a moment if Ellison has found him, the other half of his pair. I wonder if there's someone at home now, a man a bit taller than he is, a man who smokes, a man who's glad to have Ellison's gray hair to look at, glad to have Ellison's suits to keep neat again. I start to ask, Daniel? He blinks and we both blush. I say nothing after all. We shake hands and sit together. The other three children from the day of the first interview are there in the lobby with their families. One of the families has brought an older sister with them today. Another family has a baby in a sling against his mother's chest. It's brave to have another after a new child. The odds are such that I've never heard of a family having two, but almost no one wants to chance going through this twice. We're the last to arrive, and everyone else is dry. They look up at the squeak of our shoes. Two children go before Betsy. I get a glimpse of the review board when the doors open. Three men, three women, a mix of old and young. 
Two children come back and run into their parents' arms. Two families leave with their children, knowing they will come back one day, if not always to them. The family that is left with us is the one with the baby. He slept through most of the morning, but he wakes at the noise when the second child comes back successful and her father shouts with joy. There are embarrassed looks between the two sets of parents, us and them, apologetic smiles. The baby's mother coos at him, and then the lobby is quiet again. Betsy and Ellison are called, and they go together through the large doors. The drought continues to break against the window while Patrick and I wait for the doors to open again. My shoes are still wet, and I can feel my toes wrinkle. I want to slip them off, but I don't. Patrick loosens his tie. The lobby is too quiet. Ellison's imprint hangs in the air, clinging to me. I think I hear the strike of a match. My stomach drops at the thought that I may never know when I have met him, that I will spend a very long time shaking Ellison's ghost. Patrick holds my hand. The other family starts to watch us when the wait feels a little too long. When the doors open again, Ellison has his hand on Betsy's shoulder. She does not run to us. There's a moment when the other family in the lobby looks to them and then to us. A man I don't know curses softly in shock, and it echoes. Ellison once is crying, and the only thing that he can say is that he's sorry. Thanks, Heather, for reading her story, Ellison Once. Thanks, Ryan, for his story, Heart Failure. Thanks to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart. And thank you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. We want to expend a special thanks to our listeners for making last month our best month ever. Please keep spreading the word about us, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, following us on our social media accounts, and sending us your stories. We're having a great time making this podcast, and we'd love it if you shared it with people who you think will enjoy listening to it. We'll be back in two weeks with more secondhand stories.